0: And now this morning, we'll continue in our trek through the letter of 1 John. And we'll be looking at 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Before we read that together, let's pray together. Great God, you have revealed yourself... And <clears throat> all that you have made. And the nature itself testifies enough that we ought to be able to see you and worship you rightly from it. But in our sinful state, we have need of a clearer revelation, and we give you great praise that you have given us that very thing in your word. And as we turn now to your word, we ask that you would conform our hearts, our minds, our lives to its teaching and to your priorities that we would die to ourselves and live in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. 1 John 2, starting in verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. We talked last time we were together in verses 12 to 14 about how those verses 12 to 14 were sort of like a halftime. And John breaks in the action from what he had been teaching, and he takes a, a time to give sort of an apostolic pep talk. He reassures. The saints in this church or group of churches that he writes to that they do have the true gospel and that they are indeed Christians. And having done that, he sends them back out into the Christian life reassured of their Christian faith. But now the question arises, how do they go back out and to re-engage in the Christian life faithfully? Here, John gives them a sort of very quick game plan. It's a very simple instruction, and the instruction comes here in the very first words, Do not love the world, or anything of the world. I'm going to read that again, together with verse 16, verse 15 and 16. Do not love the world, or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. Do not love the world. It seems to be a rather odd thing for John to say, given that he's the one who in John 3.16 very famously said, For God so loved the world. How can it be that God would love the world and then turn around and tell us through the pen of the apostle that we should not love the world? And the, the crucial thing to understanding this, we have to understand what it is that John means by the word world. John does not mean uh, the physical world, the globe upon which we live, or even all of the universe. He doesn't, he doesn't mean people themselves. When John speaks of world, he means all the sinful habits and priorities and governments and rulers and all such things inside our world which are brought about by sin. Do not love the world. Do not have worldly priorities. Jesus said in John 12, verse 31, that Satan is the prince or the ruler of this world. So we can use something, a word like worldliness or worldly. If someone is worldly, they care about the things of this life at the exclusion or at the expense of the things of God. We can think of just one example. Be the example of greed. This is true for most people, I think. Whatever we have is never enough. Uh, People will say, I will be content when I reach this point. But you know, the strange thing is, very very few people are content when they reach that point. There's always something more to be had. There's always another person to catch. There's always another goal to make and to hope to reach. There's always a better car or a bigger truck or a nicer house. There's always something more that can be had. And so we greed, we have covetousness in our hearts because we value the things of this world to such an extent that we are willing to strive for them continuously even if it is at the expense of our striving after God. Just one extreme example of this. Might come from a conversation I was having with a, a few guys this last week. We were remembering together a very sad event happened in our area where two guys got together to sell an xbox and to buy an xbox respectively they had made the transaction on the internet they met in broad daylight and when they met together the supposed buyer shot the one who had the xbox took it and ran away killed him dead in broad daylight why because he wanted an xbox and didn't want to pay for it do you know how much that xbox is probably worth today you could probably buy it for 20 bucks at a garage sale Now that's an extreme example, but we desire things to such an extent that we are in some cases willing to do whatever it takes to obtain what it is that we desire. We can think of another example of worldliness, the desire for power, a lust for power. If you read history at all, you'll see that the history of this world is one story after another, after another, after another, of one person destroying other persons, or one nation destroying other nations out of a love for power and authority. I was reading an article this last week about the assassination of Zulu. He was the, the leader, sort of an emperor of a kingdom or an empire in Uh, Southern Africa, the region of Namibia, what is now South Africa. And why was it that he was assassinated? Because the assassins wanted his power. And how had he come to power? But he had assassinated the ones who were before him. And what happened to the ones who assassinated him? They were assassinated. And one by one by one, the desire for power leads to murder. And then another one wants that same power, and they murder the one who murdered the one who murdered the other ones to have it first. You think about Julius Caesar, what happened to him? He was murdered because people didn't like the way he exercised his power, and they thought that they could exercise it better. Or going back into the Scriptures, the, just read through First and 2 Kings, particularly with attention to the northern kingdom. And as you read the story of 1st and 2nd Kings, you see that it's the story of one dynasty after another after another. And how does a new dynasty come to power, but the old king is killed together with all of the potential heirs? Why? Out of a desire for power. We crave power. Perhaps closer to home, we have an idol of freedom. Now I have libertarian tendencies, so I'm not talking about perhaps that kind of freedom. It's good to desire freedom, to be able to live our lives in good conscience. But I mean the sort of freedom that would push everybody else out of the way out of a desire to entirely live in convenience and never be inconvenienced. This is the driving force behind abortion in our land is the desire not to be inconvenienced and not to have to live with responsibility for another person's life. One former president said that he, if, his, if his daughters ever made a mistake, he wouldn't want them to be punished with a baby. And that sort of mindset says that I am willing to even have my grandchild killed if it means that my daughters aren't going to be inconvenienced. If they can aspire to a college education, if they can aspire to some sort of of self-fulfilling life, then I am willing even to have my grandchild killed inside her body. That is worldliness. The lust for power, the lust for freedom, the lust for convenience, these things are all part of the world. And John says, do not love the world. James says the same thing. I think he touches on a lot of the themes we've just talked about. James 4, starting in verse 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you, you desire and you desire and do not have so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, The most blatant example of worldliness and the, the culmination of all these different things, the desire for power and autonomy, and jealousy, comes in the crucifixion of the Son of God, the crucifixion of God in the flesh. Why did Pilate put Jesus on the cross when he knew that he was a righteous, innocent man? Because he wanted to save his political career. He didn't want to be inconvenienced, and he certainly didn't want to bring Caesar's displeasure upon himself. He had a desire for power, for convenience, for self. So he had an innocent man murdered. Why did the Jews want Pilate to put Jesus on the cross? Because they were jealous, and they were prideful, and they had a desire to maintain whatever petty power they did indeed have John introduces Jesus in John 1, the Gospel of John, John 1, verses 10 to 11. He says of him, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Then later in John 3, verses 19 and 20, John speaks to the world's response to Jesus and says, and this is the judgment, the light, remember that God is light. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not not come to love the light, lest his work should be exposed." So Pilate hated the light because he did not want the darkness of his heart to be exposed. The Jews hated the light because the darkness of their hearts had been exposed by Jesus and they didn't want it to be exposed anymore. They were afraid of him and so they conspired together, Jew and Gentile, the world conspiring together to hoist the Son of God, God in the flesh upon a Roman torturing cross. They were willing, and we are, in our sin and apart from God's grace, willing to even kill God if it means getting what we want. It shouldn't be so for us. Paul says that in Ephesians 2. He says, you once walked in the ways of this world, but not anymore. We shouldn't walk in the ways of this world. We should not walk out of a a life of covetousness and greed, lust for power. Perhaps to use a a metaphor that Paul uses, Paul compares the church to a wife and he compares Christ to a husband. And he speaks of the relationship between God and His people as a, a marriage relationship. And the love that we are expected to give to the God, to God, is an exclusive love. Now just think of this. If a husband walks in and talks to his wife one night, and he says, you know what, honey? I love you more than all other women 55% of the time. That's more than half. How is that going to go over that's not going to go over very well. I, was, I, I hope it wouldn't go over very well in any of our homes. And so that's not how it works with God either. God does not desire 55% of our allegiance. God requires entire, complete allegiance of the human heart. That is that whenever something else competes with God for the affections of our heart, God always wins. doesn't mean that we can't have Cars, we can't run for office, have homes. It means that none of those things are allowed to become idols and ever stand before God in our hearts. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew six twenty-four. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I wonder, perhaps some of us haven't thought about this much, but there is something in our worship service which has been missing lately. And each of the things that we do in our worship service, we call them elements of our worship service, everything that we do is done for a reason. And there is a purpose to what we do. Uh, For instance, the call to worship the call to worship isn't just a fancy way of saying, be quiet, it's time to come inside now and come out of the back. The, the, the call to worship is always read from the Word of God for the purpose of saying the voice of God is calling the people of God to come together as a people of God to raise their God-given voices to worship God as we were created. The call to worship is an invitation, but it is also a command. God calling us, To exercise our duty of delight to worship. That's much richer than saying, Come inside and be quiet. It is the voice of God. When we sing, why do we sing? Because God has given us voices to sing, He calls us to sing. He's given us voices for the purpose that we might sing. He he gives us singing so that we can join our voices with the angels in a heavenly chorus of praise to Him. He has made all things for His glory. And why is it that we confess our faith in the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed? Why is it that we read the Ten Commandments responsively? Because these things remind us And the Ten Commandments are standing before God and what He requires of us. And in the case of the confessions, they remind us what we believe, what binds us together, and what binds us together with Christians around the world and throughout time. And why do we preach? It's not because you particularly enjoy me. (laughs) I hope not. We preach because this is how God speaks to us. When we sit down under the Word, that's the reason that historically... Protestant churches have had pulpits that are lifted a little high. We sit under the word and we say, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And why do we have the benediction? Because as we are called to come by God, so too God sends us out blessed. We are sent out into the week to come, whatever may come, as God's people. And He is with us. But there's one thing that's been missing, and it's the offering. And I want you to be very clear on this up front. I'm not saying that because we are in financial need or or something like that. Our, Our receipts are every bit as good this year as last year. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So I'm not saying this from a position of weakness. This is from a position of conviction. Our offering is an important part of our worship service. Because when we come to that time in our worship, we are saying... To ourselves and to God, I love God more than I love whatever else I could have purchased with that money. And we are collectively putting our money, literally, where our mouths are. When we put the thing in the offering plate, whether great or small, we are saying, it's true of me that I love God more than I love money. John moves on then in verse 17 to give us a reason for why we ought not to love the things of the world and why we should indeed love the Father. Verse 17, the world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Going back into verse 16, John condemned boasting. Boasting in what we have, boasting in what we do, and we might ask ourselves, why, why shouldn't we boast? Why shouldn't we boast? If I if have accomplished something, why not let people know it? If I have something, why not let people know it? Why not make my life one big, long, end zone celebration? I had a high school English teacher, and uh, he had a, a few mottos. He was a, <laughs> a quirky dude. But he had a few models. one of which was, if you got it, flaunt it. You can tell I didn't go to a Christian school. But why not? Why not flaunt it if you got it? Because John would have us know first that everything we have that might possibly be worth flaunting, and we have far fewer things worth flaunting than we probably think we have, every possible thing that we have is good as good is a gift, and we have not received it, through our own doing, but God has given us everything we have. You know, we say someone, oh, she's gifted. But you know what we're saying when we say she's gifted. What we're saying is that God has given her a gift. You don't boast in gifts. You revel in gifts. You are thankful for gifts. But also as well, John would have us to see whatever we would boast in is passing away. Together with the flesh and the devil, the world passes away. Together with everything in it which is not of enduring value. Everything in the world will one day be gone. And what lies at the root of sin is an undervaluing of God and an overvaluing of the world. This has been true throughout the the story of the Scriptures. This was true of Eve. When Eve stood before the tree and the serpent enticed her to eat, she saw that it was pleasing to the eye, that it was good for food, and that it was good for making one wise. And she took and she ate and she gave it to her husband who was with her and he also ate. And why? Because she overvalued the taste and the benefit of the fruit and undervalued the Word of God. You think of David. David overvalued Bathsheba's beauty and undervalued the Sixth and Seventh Commandments. Or you think of Pilate. Pilate overvalued the benefit that he would receive politically, and he undervalued the Son of God. It didn't work for Pilate. He lost his career anyways. And even if he hadn't, he'd be dead today. He would have lost it at some point. That's what's at the the root of sin is an overvaluing of a worldly thing and an undervaluing of God. Sin always consists in that. Perhaps the clearest example from the Scriptures is Judas. Judas overvalued the prestige he might gain from the Jews and the money, as meager as it was, sold Jesus for the price of a slave. And he undervalued the great blessing he had had in walking with the Son of God. And he committed the grossest sin. And almost immediately out of remorse, he realized his mistake and he hung himself. Such is the emptiness of the world. I think sometimes it helps us to get some perspective. And to get perspective, we might ask ourselves a simple question. In 100 years, will this matter? Will whatever it is that I love, will it still matter 100 years from now? 100 years is a long time, but the years go by pretty quickly. There's been a lot of people and a lot of years before us, and there will be, unless Christ comes, a lot of people in a lot of years after us. And 100 years from now, your money will have been inherited, hopefully peacefully by your children or perhaps by your grandchildren. Your car, your truck will be rusted out unless somehow somebody thought it was worth having some sort of antique. Your home will probably have been bulldozed, and if not, it will be an antique of itself. People might go through tours of it. You'll be deadened in the ground with a headstone in a cemetery. Scenery, just like all the cemeteries we drive by. I've said it before, I'll say it again. I I really enjoy that we have a cemetery outside. I know the village doesn't particularly like it from what I understand. And when I I tell people what pastor, what church I pastor, they say, oh, the one with the cemetery. (laughs) I say, yes, the one with the cemetery. But you know, it's helpful that we have to drive past the cemetery to get into church every day. Because it reminds us that there were people one day who sat right here, and now they're there. And one day we won't be there because that's full. But we'll be somewhere else, just like them. And are you living for things now that will still matter then? It's a very short parable. It's my favorite. I've told you it probably an obnoxious amount of times before, and I will probably tell you an obnoxious amount of times moving forward as well. It's a very short parable. There was a man who was working in a field, and he found a treasure And in his joy, he reburied the treasure, went and sold everything he had so he could buy the field. And why did he do that? Because he considered that everything else he owned was worth doing away with in order to have something better. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like that. It is worth doing away with everything else that needs to be done away with if we can have it. Ever wonder why gold... Is so valuable. I don't, I don't know about you, I, I think I probably have goofy thoughts, but sometimes I lay awake at night with all kinds of goofy questions and I think, why do we care about metal? Like, why do, why do we care about gold? It, but the reason it has such enduring value is that people think it's beautiful and it doesn't corrode, doesn't rust. And the kingdom of God is like that, but to an infinite degree. It's beautiful and it never dies never corrodes, and it never goes away. So much of this life is fleeting. And we're meant to see that in the Scriptures again and again and again, and we're not meant to harden our hearts towards it. Money comes and goes. Cars come and go. Houses come and go. Your favorite political candidate wins this election and loses the next. Even FDR, he won four presidential elections. Even he lost out to age in the end. You can get all the Botox and all the tummy tucks you want, but age is going to win out in the end and you're going to lose the beauty. You can can live for whatever else it is that you want to live for, but in the end, it all goes away. I grew up, in a sports town, and we were really good at basketball. There was a lot of Dutch folks. I was average height <laughs> for the basketball team. And that's saying something. You know, but what was sad was you'd come across these guys who were 35 or 40, and they would talk as much as you could think about about how they were all conference. They were all conference on the basketball team. You know what? There's something sad about that. You peaked at age 17. It doesn't matter anymore. What once was a point of pride, now is something to pity you for if you can't stop talking about it. It all fades one day. It can be crushing. I think we're meant to feel the crush of it. In fact, there's a whole chapter in the Old Testament written by Solomon, who probably should have taken his own advice later on in his life, in Ecclesiastes 1. He said this, The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come, generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was already here. Long ago, it was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. One day, everything in the world is gone. And on that day, only one thing that matters remains, and that is Christ and his kingdom. And Jesus says you can have the world or you can have Christ, but you can't have both. There's a story in the scripture, very simple, a rich young man comes up to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? Among other things, Jesus finishes and he says, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor and follow me. The man goes away sad because he had a lot of things. And we're never told if that man came back. We hope he did, but we don't know. In that moment, he went away sad because he allowed the things to compete with the Christ. So what will you love? What will you love? Will you be like the rich young man who went away and loved the world? Or like the man from the parable who went away, gave away everything he had so that he could have something worth more. Will you love the world and its now? Or will you love God and his eternal later? That's where John finishes. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. Will you live for now and only now? Or will you live for Christ and live forever? John would have us love God and live forever. So I would highly commend that to all of you. Let's pray. Lord God, we confess that we do not get past one of the commandments before needing to rightfully fall on our faces before you and say, I have sinned. We have all kinds of idols and that we have loved the world far more than we ought to have. And perhaps even our, our hearts have become calloused and hard. We pray that these simple words Do not love the world, would rip the callous off our hearts and transform our lives that we will do your will and live forever. Take away all the things that would hinder us, as painful as it may be, and draw us to Christ with our hope in him and his kingdom which never passes away. Don't allow us to fall into the greed that always lusts for more, but to store up treasures in heaven where Christ is seated and to long for him in that day. Don't allow us to waste our lives, but put in us a faith It gives us the right to live forever. Amen.